Hi everyone, I'm Yasmeen Burns. Welcome back. I wanted to introduce to you all Sarah Kabidi. Sarah is a fourth year medical student who has been part of the Loop podcast for a couple years, so honestly ever since it began. Um, and she's been kind of behind the scenes more, but this is her first time on the air with us. So Sarah, can you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Kabidi. I am a fourth year medical student at Emory and currently getting my master's of science in clinical research. I'm super excited to be joining y'all on this side of the microphone. Like Yasmeen mentioned, I've been involved with the loop ever since its early days, but have definitely been um, more behind the scenes. So this is really exciting for me. And yeah, it's just been awesome to see how the podcast has grown over the years and all of the opportunities it's provided for myself and students like me. That's really cool. And are you applying into plastic surgery next year? Yeah, I sure am. It's actually been really nice to watch my friends I matriculated with kind of go through the process first and seeing their successes is making me all the more excited to apply. That's awesome. What um what rotations are you starting on when you when you get back into the clinical space? So I'm starting on my home plastics rotation and then I'm off to a couple of ways over the summer. Um, and then I'm getting married. So it's wow. gonna be yeah, it's gonna be a busy, a busy season, but a, a really good season. Oh my. Sounds like a lot to look forward to. So what brings us here today is that it's Monday and the in service is super close. Um, it's this Thursday. So we wanted to reserve this week to release a rerun of the big Hail Mary episode. I personally found it really great to listen to just a few days before the exam to kind of cram all that extra information in your head. We've taken the highest yield parts of the in-service review episode since our last Hail Mary and have added that all in. It's quite a long episode, but it's crammed full of good stuff. So I hope you guys all enjoy. Yep, absolutely. Please enjoy listening. All right, let's go ahead and jump straight into the original Hail Mary episode. If you want to skip ahead to our brand new content from 2022 and 2023, go ahead and skip to an hour and 13 minutes in. Have you listening? We have the entire team here. Hello, everyone. This is Brian DeSiri. Hope we can get you these quick facts before the in-service, and I hope it helps. Hey, everyone. It's Dr. Casey Sheck. Hey, gang. Now let's get started. So let's start off the discussion with cranial maxillofacial, and let's start off with head and neck anatomy. So we all know there's six pharyngeal arches, and for each one of these, I'm going to talk about the muscle, the skeletal structures, nerve, and artery associated with each arch. So let's start it off. Pharyngeal arch one is the anterior digastric muscle, mylohyoid muscle, tensor villi palatini. Then there's the bones, temporal bone, zygoma, maxilla, premaxilla, meckles, cartilage, malleus, and ingus. And the nerve is the trigeminal nerve. The artery is the first aortic arch artery. The second pharyngeal arch is associated with muscles of facial expression, posterior digastric muscle, stylohyoid, and then for the bone, there's portions of the hyoid and stapes, the facial nerve, and the stapedial artery. Now moving on to the third pharyngeal arch, you have the stylopharyngeus, portions of the hyoid bone again, glossopharyngeal nerve, and common carotid artery. For the fourth pharyngeal arch, the levator villi palatini, uvula, palatopharyngeus, palatoglossus, 
pharyngeal constrictors, cricothyroid, salpingopharyngeus. For the skeletal structures, it's the laryngeal cartilaginous structures, the vagus nerve, and the aortic arch and right subclavian artery. The sixth pharyngeal arch is associated with the arytenoid muscles, the epiglottis muscles. There's no skeletal structures. And then vagus nerve, aorta, pulmonary artery, and the ductus arteriosus. Now let's start the craniofacial section. Genes you need to know. FTFR2 is Cruzon, Aperts, and Pfeiffer. FTFR3 is Mwenki. Twist, Sather Chosen, Rab23, Carpenter. Aperts is characterized by mitten hands. This is bilateral symmetrical syndactyly. Pfeiffer is broad thumbs and great toes. Moinky, thimble-like middle phalanges. Sather Chosen, low hairline, ptosis, and syndactyly. Carpenter, low-set malformed ears with deafness, preaxial polydactyly. Pierre Robin sequence is retrogenia, glossoproptosis, and airway obstruction. Treacher Collins, the gene is TCOF1, or remember, Treacher Collins, of course. This is characterized by the Tessier cleft of 6, 7, and 8. Vanderwood, gene is IRF6. They have lip pits and popliteal pterygum. This is also the most common cause of cleft lip and palate. 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome, or DeGeorge. This is catch 22. Characterized by cardiac defects, abnormal facies, thymic aplasia, cleft lip and palate, and hypocalcemia. Charge syndrome. This is gene CHD7. Characterized by colobomas of the eye, heart defects, atresia of the nasal coanea, retardation of growth, genital or urinary abnormalities, and ear anomalies or deafness. Vactoril. This is characterized by vertebral, anal, cardiac, tracheoesophageal fistulas, renal, and limb anomalies. Golden Haar. These patients have microtia, epibulbar dermoids, and preauricular appendages. Moving on, we'll talk about cleft lip and cleft palate. So for this, you want to remember embryologically that a median cleft lip results from a failed fusion of bilateral medial nasal prominences. A unilateral cleft lip results from failed fusion of the medial nasal prominence and the maxillary prominence. And then a cleft of the primary palate is produced by a failure of the fusion of the medial and lateral palatine processes. With this, you should also remember the risks of children having a non-syndremic cleft lip. For an isolated cleft lip in a sibling, you have a 2.5% chance for subsequent children to have a cleft lip. For a sibling with a unilateral cleft lip and palate, you have a 4.2% chance of having subsequent children with cleft lip. If you have two siblings with cleft lip, you will then have a 10% chance of subsequent children being affected. And then the most is with parents and siblings. So one parent and one sibling, you have a 17% chance. Next, they love to test on the VPI closure patterns and treatments. So quick review. The first closure pattern you'll see is coronal. When I think of this, I think coronal or crown 
which is royal and fancy, and you wear bow ties to fancy events. Uh, so this is the bow tie closure pattern. Uh, it means that your vellum is elevating and coming close to or making contact with the posterior pharynx, but not having any movement of the lateral walls or not having enough to close. So you have this bow tie shaped opening. The way to fix this is to bulk up and help add muscle to close those lateral openings. The surgery that you're going to do is a sphincter pharyngeoplasty. And the answer for this is you're using the palatopharyngeus muscles. The next closure pattern that they'll give you is a sagittal closure pattern. This is the opposite of the coronal. It has little to no closure in the AP direction, but the lateral walls are closing. The treatment for this is a pharyngeal flap. These are usually superiorly based and you raise the mucosa, the superior constrictor muscles, and this includes the visceral pretracheal fascia. This is then sewn to the soft palate, creating two lateral ports that allow air to pass through, but are easier to occlude during swallowing and speaking than they were before. Last thing quickly is remember to review velocardiofacial syndrome. It's a 22Q11 deletion, microdeletion. When you are doing a posterior pharyngeal flap on a BCF patient, you want to get an MRA to look at the positioning of the uh, carotid arteries. You can have medialization of the carotid arteries and end up with an inadvertent carotid artery injury dissecting out the posterior pharyngeal flap. Moving on to ear reconstruction, the four nerves supplying the ear are the greater auricular nerve, auriculotemporal nerve, lesser occipital nerve, and don't forget the Arnold's nerve, which is the auricular branch of the vagus nerve for the concha sensation. The dominant blood supply of the ear is the posterior auricular artery. We're going to talk about a few of the conditions that are commonly tested. Cryptosia, that's pocket ear. So remember the upper part of the ear is adherent to the scalp. So you just release the pocket and resurface the retroposterior auricular defects. The second one is stall ear. It's an abnormal third helix and you treat it with a wedge excision. For microtia, remember there's three types of treatments. Autologous rib cartilage, implant use like Medpore, and osseointegrated prosthesis. Now for the autologous rib cartilage treatment, remember the number of stages for the different ones. I'm just going to quickly go over it. Tanzer is six, Brent is four, and Nagata is two. The Nagata technique doesn't separate tragal reconstruction and lobule transposition. Moving on to prominent ears, remember, start molding as early as possible, usually around three days old, because that's when there's peak maternal estrogen in the baby's blood, and you can easily mold the cartilage. Now we're going to move on to ear reconstruction. Remember, the superior and middle third ear defects are pretty much treated the same, and they go by size. So less than one and a half centimeters, you can do a wedge resection and primary closure. One and a half to about two and a half centimeters, you want to do the chondrocutaneous advancement flap or the Anita Bach technique. For greater than two and a half centimeters, the posterior auricular flap. For lower third defects or the lobule, remember you can lose up to 50% of the earlobe with minimal deformity. Let's talk about eyelids. Blepharoptosis, this is a low-lying upper eyelid on primary gaze. Causes can be congenital. The most common cause of congenital is idiopathic with a fibrotic muscle. These patients need a brain MRI to rule out compression when in subacute or acute ptosis presents in children greater than one year. 
you need to correct this at ages three to four when the leg is big enough unless they have amblyopia. And I say leg because congenital ptosis repair is with autologous fascia latigraphs because this has the lowest long-term recurrence rate and lowest complication rate. Other causes, number one, levator dehiscence or involutional. This is most common in elderly and resting eyelid position migrates inferiorly and supratarsal crease moves more superior. This is called senile ptosis. Signs and symptoms include a high skin crease greater than 7 millimeters, thin upper eyelid, and lid drop on downward gaze. The Nessie sign is the ability to visualize iris through eyelid closure. So this is caused by attenuation of the levator attachment to the tarsal plate. Treatment is to reinsert the levator if good levator function is still present. If you see this in a unilateral presentation, the challenge is to determine whether the contralateral eye is osteototic and requires surgery. This phenomenon is explained by Herring's Law, equal and simultaneous innervation of both levator palpebrae muscles. When one eye has ptosis, the brain signals both eyelids to raise. The less totic contralateral eye can look normal. So you must perform a test with phenylephrine. Place the phenylephrine eye drops in the most totic eye. Another cause is myoneural dysfunction. The ptosis worsens with fatigue and pathognomonic for myasthenia at the end of the day. The ice test is a two-minute ice cube on the eyelid for normal appearance. Next, let's talk about complications after an upper bluff. Complications include lagophthalmos, always occurs due to edema and resolves in weeks. If it persists, use eye lubrication and downward massage. Next, retrobarbar hematoma. Symptoms include pain, proptosis, vision changes, such as scotomas. Treatment is emergent lateral canthotomy if vision threatened. Medical options include mannitol, acetazolamide, and steroids. The most common complication of upper blepharoplasty is asymmetry, especially in Asian eyelids. Let's get started with facial palsy. The most common cause of facial nerve palsy is Bell's palsy, and that's idiopathic. It's associated with pregnancy, and it's most commonly caused by HSV or herpes. The treatment is prednisone and valcyclovir and eyelid protection. For facial nerve injury, there are several surgical options. For acute traumatic injuries, you have to think about where it is. For injuries that are medial to the lateral canthus, there's arborization of the zygomatic and buccal branches of the facial nerve, so you do not need to explore. However, lateral to the lateral canthus, you want to explore within 72 hours and repair. And if you need a graft, so be it. If there's an acute injury to the temporal bone, there's a high likelihood of a frontal branch injury, and the treatment for that is to explore. There are also non-traumatic causes of facial palsy. For rapid onset, you want to think HSV or herpes simplex virus, HZV, herpes zoster varicella, and Lyme disease. For insidious onset, you want to make sure you get a cross-sectional imaging and workup for tumors. If it's present at birth, you're going to start considering congenital causes. For delayed and long-standing facial palsy, like over four months, you want to determine what the issue is. For patients like that, you may want to consider Botox for symmetry. If there is no nerve available proximally, you may need to do a nerve transposition versus a nerve graft. Muscles are not viable if the facial palsy has been present for a long time, i.e. over a year or so. And in those situations, you need to do a functional nerve transfer, usually a gracilis flap. Now, going on to the gracilis flap, there are many advantages. It has a reliable vascular pedicle, gives facial movement with some emotional animation. There's one direction of pull, which simulates the zygomatic major. 
This attaches to the body of the zygoma cranially and at the modiolus caudally. There's one nerve and no tendon. The most common use is for Mobius syndrome with a nerve to masseter, since typically both facial nerves are affected and therefore cannot do a cross-face nerve graft. It could be used as a one-stage procedure with a nerve to the masseter or a two-stage procedure with a cross-face nerve graft. In the nerve to the masseter, this is again a single stage. It's powerful and good innervation. Muscle contraction typically exceeds that of the cross-face nerve graft and is quickest re-innervation of a natural dynamic function. This is a good option if you want a single stage because this decreases donor site morbidity. There is less spontaneity than the cross-face nerve graft. However, the symmetry is the same as the cross-face nerve graft. For hypoglossal facial nerve transfer, there's usually synkinesis of the treated side. This is a neurological symptom in which a voluntary muscle movement causes the simultaneous involuntary contraction of other muscles that are in the neighborhood. An example might be smiling, inducing an involuntary contraction of the eye muscles, causing a person to squint when smiling. The treatment for that would be Botox. Let's move on to cross-face nerve graft. This is the most symmetric and spontaneous smile that you can achieve. The disadvantage is that it's two-stage and it takes a long time. At the first stage, you will harvest autogenous graft, usually sural nerve graft, and attach it to the functioning contralateral facial nerve and stash the end of the nerve graft in the buccal sulcus. You will follow this clinically, and as you follow the patient, you're gonna tap on their face. You're gonna see if the patient has a tenel sign to ensure that the nerve is regenerating appropriately. In some scenarios, you may wanna consider doing what's called a babysitter procedure with either a nerve to masseter or nerve to hypoglossal to keep the ipsilateral muscles alive. The thing you wanna consider for the babysitter procedure is that if the facial palsy is longstanding, i.e. longer than a year or two, then performing the babysitter procedure won't really work since the muscles have already become fibrotic and fibrotic to the point where even after innervating it, it won't work. Then after some time has passed, you're gonna do the second stage of the cross-face nerve graft. This is an innervated gracilis flap using the obturator nerve as the nerve to attach to the previous nerve graft. Next up is the topic of lip reconstruction. So for this, if you have a quarter to one-third of the lip full thickness defect, you can just excise this and close it primarily. You may need peri-ALR uh, crescenteric excisions uh, for the upper lip to be closed without any bunching around the ala. Uh, next for larger defects are a couple flaps that you should know. There's the ABE flap. This is used for an upper lip midline defect, uh, about one-third to two-thirds of the entire lip. This is based off a coronal branch of the labial artery and is a two-stage reconstruction. You will flip up your flap with the design being the same height design that you have in a defect and then half of the defect width. So if you have three centimeters tall by two centimeters wide defect, you are going to have a three centimeter tall flap design with a one centimeter wide flap to flip up. You're going to divide this after about two to three weeks. And this is de-innervated at that time. However, the sensation returns in the order of pain, then touch, then temperature. The next flap is the Eslander flap. It's the same as the Abbe flap in thought process, but it's a one-stage reconstruction as it is used to repair oral commissures. The lateral commissure is what you're going to be repairing. The last kind of big flap is central upper or lower lip defects. One-stage reconstruction is going to be a carapanzig flap. 
This maintains lip mobility and sensation as you dissect out bluntly the muscle and take care to preserve the neurovascular bundle. The problem with this, while it does maintain mobility and sensation, is that you have a high likelihood of microstomia. The other two flaps you want to think about are for complete lip uh, reconstruction. You can do a free radial forearm flap. Uh, This is a static flap, which leads to poor oral competence. However, you can use the palmaris tendon for lip support. The other one that you can do is a free gracilis flap that you can neurotize and have a dynamic flap. So those are the two of the free flaps to know about lip repair. All right. For head and neck tumors, let's talk about the pediatric population. The most common site of salivary gland cancers occurs in the parotid gland, about 72%, followed by the minor salivary glands, 21%, and the submandibular glands, 8%. The most common types of salivary gland cancers are mucoepidermoid carcinoma, adenoid cystic carcinoma, and acinic cell carcinoma. In all locations, mucoepidermoid cancer is the most common type, 53% for parotid, 55% for submandibular gland, and 63% for minor salivary glands. And next is maxillofacial trauma. Uh, The majority of these questions are regarding frontal sinus fractures. You want to think about four things when you are reading these questions. You have an anterior table, posterior table, the frontonasal duct, and if there's a CSF leak. So with an isolated anterior table without frontonasal duct damage, you can watch that. Unless the patient wants a better cosmetic outcome with any type of deformity, then you can repair it. Next would be an anterior table fracture with frontonasal duct injury. For this, you would obliterate the frontal sinus. So what you do is you remove all of the mucosa, you close the duct with either bone, cartilage, fat, or muscle, and then obliterate the rest of the space with fat or muscle. The next thing you want to look at is if you have a comminuted posterior table. If this is comminuted, you need to operate. If it is displaced, more than one wall thickness, you should operate. And if there is a CSF leak in a comminuted or displaced fracture, you should operate. The operation for most of these, if it's not a simple repair of the bone and restabilization, would be cranialization. Cranialization involves removal of the posterior table. You close the sinonasal tract, and then you remove all sinus mucosa, and then you use a galial frontalis flap to cover the anterior table and then allow for a new space for the frontal lobe expansion. Now let's talk about orthognathics. There's usually at least one question that you can get right by just knowing the definitions of the following. So landmarks. The poignon is the chin point. SN, this provides reference to the cranial base. This is a line drawn from the celica tercia to the nasion. The SNA is the angle from the SN to the maxilla. This denotes position of the maxilla to the cranial base. The mean is 82, plus or minus 2. The SNB, this is the angle from the SN to the mandible. This denotes position of the mandible. The mean is 80, plus or minus 2. Less than normal is retronathic, and more is pronathic, A and B, this is position of the maxilla relative to the mandible. Normal is 2, plus or minus 2. If it is positive, the maxilla is anterior to the mandible. 
If it is negative, the mandible is anterior to the maxilla. You can use these measurements to determine occlusion. Treatment for malposition of the maxilla or the mandible. If you need less than one centimeter of advancement of the maxilla, you can perform Lafort 1 and internal fixation. Gaps larger than 5 millimeters still need bone or bone substitute graphene. If it is greater than 1 centimeter, these patients need distraction osteogenesis. The most important thing for success is stable fixation of the bone edges. Consolidation takes 4 to 6 weeks, and you can get up to 3 centimeters of advancement. Now focusing on the mandible. In terms of anatomy, the important questions that they like to ask are that, remember, the lateral and medial pterygoid both attach to the lateral pterygoid plate. It's just the lateral pterygoid attaches to the lateral portion of the lateral pterygoid plate, and the medial pterygoid attaches to the medial portion of the lateral pterygoid plate. The lateral pterygoid then inserts on the mandibular condyle, and the medial pterygoid and the masseter join at the insertion on the ramus to form a common tendinous sling. So that's your pterygomasseteric sling. And then in terms of fixation, remember there's two types, load-bearing, which means that the plate has enough strength to bear all the load, and the mandibular bone gets nothing. Versus load-sharing fixation, as the name implies, the plate and the mandibular bone share the load. In terms of treatment, remember, any edentulous and atrophic mandible that includes comminuted fractures, infected fractures, they're going to get a load-bearing fixation. And for Chompy's plate, which is a load-sharing plate, you want to use it for a non-comminuted angle fracture. And in this case, you place the plate along the external oblique ridge. Let's move on to core surgical principles. Let's talk about bone grafts. Osteogenesis requires both osteoconduction and osteoinductive factors. Osteoconduction, this is creeping substitution, so conduction creeping. Once implanted, serves as a non-viable scaffold for new progenitor cells and blood vessels. The bone graft becomes a template for the deposition of new bone and the graft resorbs. Examples include cortical bone graft, hydroxyapatite, porous polyethylene, and cancellous bone. Next, osteointegration. This refers to a connection between ordered living bone and the surface of a load-curing implant without intervening layer of fibrous tissue. Example includes titanium and hydroxyapatite. Osteoinduction. This refers to the direct stimulation of mesenchymal cells at the recipient site by bone morphogenic protein to differentiate into osteoprogenitor cells. Examples include demineralized bone putty, BMP protein, cancellous bone. Next, osteogenesis. This is the formation of new bone by cells in a flapper graft that survived the transfer. The osteoblasts in the donor survive transplant and quickly start producing new bone. Example would include vascularized bone grafts such as a free fibula flap. And also cancellous bone. Cancellous bone does all three osteogenesis, osteoinduction, and osteoconduction. All right, let's talk about burn. Referral to burn centers include burns that include 10% or more of partial thickness, burns to face, hands, feet, genitals, and perineum, full thickness at any age, chemical, electrical, lightning, or inhalation injuries, burn in patients with other medical comorbidities who have concomitant trauma or social work issues, and any pediatric patient. For major burns over 15%, 
Many people use the Parkland formula. Parkland formula is four times their weight in kilograms times percentage of total body surface area multiplied by 100. That equals the total fluids in milliliters that should be given in 24 hours. We give half within the first eight hours and the remainder in the next 16 hours. The modified Brook formula is the same formula as Parkland, except it's two instead of four. So the formula is two times weight in kilograms times percentage total body surface area times 100. The modified Brook formula is also given over a 24 hour period with the first half, again, also given in the first eight hours and the remainder in the next 16. In children with big burns, over 15% total body surface area and weighing less than 20 kilograms and younger than two years old, 5% dextrose should be added to prevent potentially fatal hypoglycemia. Now let's talk about chemical burns. Hydrofluoric acid, you're gonna treat with copious irrigation on low pressure and application of topical calcium gluconate, and this binds the fluoride ions. For phosphorus, you're gonna treat with immediate debridement of visible debris copious saline irrigation, and you're going to keep the injured area in a wet saline gauze. It's important to note that these patients may have cardiac and electrolyte abnormalities, so it's important to monitor that. Classically, they will have hypocalcemia, hyperphosphatemia, and sometimes even sudden death. Let's move on to carbon monoxide poisoning. You're going to diagnose this by obtaining a carboxyhemoglobin level. The treatment is to secure the airway with endotracheal intubation and 100% FiO2. Now let's briefly go over some burn dressings. It's a highly testable area. Sylvadine is unable to penetrate the wound bed. It's unable to penetrate cartilage, and it stays at the surface epithelium since the silver ions bind to the surface protein. It also cannot penetrate eschar. So for deeper burns, you, you want to consider an alternative agent, which we'll get to in a second. It's not effective against pseudomonas and enteric bacteria. The side effects is reversible neutropenia. Now, sulfamylon, on the other hand, does penetrate burn eschar and cartilage and decreases the risk of suppurative chondritis in burn ears. The side effect is metabolic acidosis. I like to remember this because sulfamylon is also known as maffinide acetate, so MA, and MA can also stand for metabolic acidosis. So there you go. I got that from Morgan, so thank you. Let's talk about melanoma. The number one prognostic indicator for melanoma is thickness in millimeters. Number two is ulceration. Patients with a melanoma with thickness greater than one millimeter need a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And now I'm going to focus on soft tissue infections. And for this section, I thought the most high yield would be to think of some catchphrases, common terms that would make you think of a certain organism. So let's go through them. For human bite, and in the scenario, they would give you an altercation, a fight bite. The organism is Echinella. For cat bite, Pastorella. When they say rice bodies, that means mycobacterium tuberculosis. And for leeches, you should think of Aramonas hydrophila. For the prophylactic antibiotic, you want to start before starting leech therapy. Remember, those are the fluoroquinolones or tetracycline or Bactrim. And let's say if it's a kid that you just did a finger replant on and you can't give them any of the above antibiotics, then you want to start a third generation cephalosporin. Hemorrhagic bullae should make you think of Vibrio vulnificus. And remember, Vibrio, you get very sick. Acute perinicheae, Staph aureus. Chronic perinicheae, think of fungus like Candida albicans. If they say dishwasher or gray fluid, then you want to think of necrotizing soft tissue infections. 
gas gangrene, clostridium perfringens, rose thorns or granulomatous lesions, always think of a gardener, that's sporotrichosis, or felon, or a tender finger pulp, think staph aureus. Next up is the always loved pressure sores. So the most important risk factor for pressure sores is having a pressure on the skin of greater than 32 millimeters of mercury, which overcomes the capillary pressure. Two locations to know about are the ischial and sacral wounds. So an ischial sore is from prolonged sitting with inadequate cushion. So think about someone in a wheelchair. And then a sacral wound is usually from prolonged bed rest without good turning. Risks for dehiscence after you repair these pressure sores are age over 45, a hemoglobin A1c greater than 6, an albumin less than 3.5, or having a failure at that site for a previous repair. Next are risk factors for failure or recurrence of a pressure sore after reconstruction. The first risk factor is diabetes. The second is the site being an ischial site as opposed to a sacral site. And then the third is having a previous failure of closure in that area. All right, time to review everyone's favorite plastic surgery topic, wound healing. So let's go over the phases of wound healing. The first phase is the inflammatory phase, and that's a time of injury to day six. This is the first part of any wounding process. The first part of the inflammatory phase is coagulation, which is started by platelets. Platelets arrive to the scene, degranulates, and releases PDGF and TGF-beta, which signals a whole bunch of other factors to come, namely thromboxane A2, which vasoconstricts. Next is the proliferative phase, days 4 to 20, and there is some overlap with the inflammatory and remodeling phases. In this phase, you have epithelialization, angiogenesis, granulation tissue formation, and collagen deposition. Angiogenesis is stimulated by TNF-alpha by new capillaries migrating into the wound. The third phase and last phase of wound healing is the remodeling phase. This starts at week two and usually is ongoing until about a year or so. Collagen type three is degraded in favor of type one. Cross-linking of collagen enhances the strength of the wound itself, and vitamin C is a cofactor for that. Now let's move on to pathologic wounding like keloids and hypertrophic scars. Keloids have 20 times more collagen compared to normal skin and has higher levels of both type 1 and type 3 collagen, although the ratio is a high type 1 to type 3 ratio. This is the same ratio as a normal skin, but again, keloids have 20 times more collagen than a normal skin. Conversely, hypertrophic scars have predominantly higher type 3 collagen. Histologically, keloids are randomly oriented, whereas hypertrophic scars are organized parallel to the skin and sometimes can have nodules. Moving on to tissue expansion, uh, you need to know the mechanism of how this works. So uh, it works through cell division, through stretch-induced signal transduction. This uh, leads to increased in angiogenesis and vascularity that causes the epidermis to thicken, but thins the dermis up to 50%. However, the dermis returns to pretty much normal, usually within two years. But overall, you have an increased amount of collagen uh, because there's more skin. Uh, there's more collagen weight overall. Uh, the elasticity and the tensile strength does decrease. Uh, you have thinning and reduced muscle mass, but not loss of function. And then you can have a permanent loss of adipose tissue up to about 50%. 
Now, one of the questions will be complication rates. So the highest incidence of tissue expander complications uh, with either infection or extrusion uh, are in the scalp, and it's especially high in children. Let's move on to breast. Breast reconstruction. The risk factors for complications with implant-based reconstruction are, number one, smoking. Number two, obesity with a BMI greater than 30. Number three, large breasts. Number four, diabetes with a hemoglobin A1C greater than 6.5%. Notes about infection with implant-based reconstruction. The most common organism, number one, is gram-positive staph aureus. Number two is staph epidermidis. If the organism is gram-negative, the number one is pseudomonas, which is number three overall behind staph aureus and staph epidermidis. You treat this with advanced beta-lactam, papillocillin or ceftazidine, carbapenems, quinolones, or aminoglycoside. There are higher rates of infection in smoking, chemo, history of radiation, mastectomy skin necrosis, obesity with BMI greater than 30, poorly controlled diabetes, so A1C greater than 6.5, or perioperative glucose of greater than 200 grams per deciliter, and post-op seroma. There is lower implant salvage in, number one, culture-positive staph aureus or staph epi. Also, purulent fluid around the implant, fever, increased white blood cell count, and early contamination or biofilm. In terms of preventing infection, our best evidence suggests one dose of IV antibiotics 30 minutes prior to incision, and also continuing antibiotics for 24 hours post-op. There's no evidence for continuing antibiotics while drain is in place. Important to note, we are always tested on BIA-ALCL. You should suspect this in a delayed seroma, usually greater than one year postoperatively. Your algorithm should include first ultrasound, then the patient needs an FNA or fine needle aspiration, you send the fluid for CD30. This likely has a multifactorial etiology, there's possibly a genetic predisposition, and a chronic biofilm is implicated. All right, let's talk about breast aug and mastopexy. Let's start with capsular contraction. Biofilms are implicated, and the most likely organism is Staph aureus. The Baker classification of capsular contracture is one through four. One is the breasts are soft, implant is not palpable, and appears normal. Baker two is breast is solid, implant is palpable but not visible, and appears normal. Baker three is breast is hard, implant is palpable and visible, and appears abnormal. And a Baker four is the most severe, breast is hard, it's deformed, and it's painful. The implant is palpable and clearly visible and clearly abnormal. For the treatment of mild capsular contracture, observation or conservative measures like a leukotriene antagonist like Montelukast can be given to inhibit the inflammatory cascade. For more severe capsular contracture, like a Baker 3 or Baker 4, you're going to operate. You can do a capsulectomy, which has been classically taught. Or what's commonly employed these days is a pocket change and a partial capsulectomy. For screening after implants, there are new guidelines as of September 2020. For asymptomatic patients, the first ultrasound or MRI should be performed at five to six years postoperatively, and then every two to three years thereafter. This is a little bit different than it was before, so this may show up on the in-service, so keep that in mind. Now let's briefly go over the classification of ptosis. 
So grade zero is pseudotosis, and that's when the nipple is above the IMF, but most of the breast is below the IMF. For grade one ptosis, or minor ptosis, the nipple is at the level of the IMF, but above the lower gland contour. For grade two ptosis, or moderate ptosis, the nipple is below the IMF and above the lower gland contour. For grade three ptosis, or severe ptosis, the nipple is below the IMF and at the lower contour. Let's move on to chest wall reconstruction. Poland syndrome is more common in males and on the right side. The pathognomonic feature is the absence of the external costal head of the pectoralis major muscle. Etiology is a likely subclavian artery supply distribution sequence during sixth week of embryogenesis. The most common associated feature is upper extremity anomalies, and of note, the most common is brachycendactyly. Moving on to focus on breast reduction. If you're performing an ipsilateral mastectomy for breast cancer with contralateral breast reduction for symmetry, there's a 5% probability of an occult breast cancer detected incidentally in the tissue specimen for the reduction. And the rate of the incidental breast cancer found in the specimen of reduction in an average risk patient is about 1%. Now let's move on to benign breast masses. Accessory breast tissue occurs along the embryonic milk line and enlarges during hormonal stimulation, so that would be puberty. Histology, you're going to see granular tissue and receptor staining positive for estrogen and progesterone. A fibroadenoma is a firm rubbery nodule, usually within the ectopic breast. And on histology, you're going to see epithelial and stromal proliferation. Lipoma, we all know lipoma, that's just mature adipose tissue. Juvenile papillomatosis. On histology, you're going to see epithelial hyperplasia, papillomatosis, sclerosing adenosis, and cysts. 10% have the possibility for malignant transformation. It occurs in the pediatric patients, and ironically, it's more common in adults. Now let's talk about the blood supply of the different types of pedicles for breast reduction. For an inferior pedicle, the blood supply comes from both the deep artery and vein of the fourth deep intercostal artery, coming up just above the fifth rib, and the more superficial arteries of the internal mammary artery from the fifth inner space coursing down around the periphery of the breast and then traveling up in the subcutaneous tissue. For a central pedicle, the blood supply is dependent entirely on the artery that penetrates up from the fourth inner space. For a superior pedicle, the blood supply is from the descending branch of the internal mammary artery coming from the second inner space of the internal mammary system. And for a medial pedicle, The blood supply curves up around the periphery of the breast from the IMA from the third inner space and runs in the subcutaneous tissue toward the nipple. Rhinoplasty. Here we're only going to talk about deformities. If it is after primary rhinoplasty, you must observe for one year. First deformity, open roof. This is from taking down the dorsal hump with separation between the sidewalls and septum. And this is a failure to bring the nasal bones together. Treatment is spreadograft and can perform infracture of the nasal bones if needed during dorsal hump reduction to prevent deformity. Next, polybeak, overprojection of supertip area which pushes down tip and overprojects, usually from scar or inadequate dorsal hump resection. Treatment is cartilage grafts to the tip. Next, rocker deformity, from medial osteotomy that goes beyond the radix so that distal part rocks up laterally. Next, dorsal hump, Component, remove septum without removing the lower lateral cartilage. Remove all individually. Composite, remove all can lead to internal valve collapse. 
can rasp, but this leaves a nidus for periostitis. Treatment is with oral antibiotics. Next is inverted V, when upper lateral is disconnected from nasal bones. Removal of transverse portion of the upper lateral or aggressive osteotomy. This collapses the lateral nasal sidewalls with retraction of the upper lateral and exposure of bone shape. Treatment is with spreadographs. Next, hanging columella, either too long caudal septum or medial cura. Next, pinch tip from decreased intradomal distance or narrow arches of the lower lateral cartilage. Treatment is subdomal. Next, alar flare. Treatment is a weir resection or other full thickness alar resection. Now to my favorite topic, cosmetic facelift. So for preoperative assessment, remember hypertension is a big one and intraoperative and postop blood pressure affects hematoma risk. DVT prophylaxis for a Caprini score of greater than 7 increases the risk for hematoma. And skin flap necrosis is 12 times more common in smokers and it also increases dehiscence and surgical site infection. For complications, obviously hematoma is the most common complication. There's no difference among techniques, and perioperative blood control is important, so that means clonidine and labetalol post-op. For adjuncts, fibrin glue doesn't reduce hematoma rates, but it may reduce ecchymosis. The quilting sutures may decrease the rate of hematoma. Tumescent before dissection facilitates the dissection, causes less bleeding, and less postoperative edema and ecchymosis. There's no difference in hematoma rates, though. Avoiding epi and tumescin may decrease hematoma risk. Now for treatment, remember, always expanding, you want to return to the operating room. An untreated hematoma can cause flap edema, ecchymosis, and eventually necrosis. A small unilateral early postoperative hematoma can get bedside drainage and pain, nausea, and anxiety control prior to forming that firm clot. For nerve injury, the great auricular nerve is the most commonly injured nerve. They complain of earlobe numbness. And McKinney's point, 6.5 centimeters below the external auditory canal on the posterior board of the sternocleidomastoid is where you can find this nerve. It runs parallel and posterior to the external jugular vein, deep to the platysma. Cranial nerve 7. In terms of cranial nerve 7 injury, the buccal branch is the most commonly injured, and there's cross-innervation with the zygomatic branch, so the sequelae is really not that much that you observe. In terms of the frontal branch or the marginal mandibular nerve, surgical intervention is indicated if brow ptosis or lip elevation persists more than six weeks. In those situations, you can do a brow lift or a division of the functional deep angularis oris muscle. And you can also temporize with Botox on the normal side just to see if they get it back in about six weeks. For the cervical branch, pseudoparalysis of marginal mandibular nerve is seen, and that will manifest itself with the patient unable to depress the lip. If the patient is able to evert and purse their lips, then they have an intact mentalis and an intact marginal mandibular nerve. Edema and ecchymosis, there's no benefit to corticosteroid use. One more thing about facelifts, pixie air. Excessive tension on the lobule during flap inset can cause this lack of separation between the earlobe and the face. Skin flap necrosis, there's tension, excessive flap thinning, and smoking are the common risk factors. Most common location is posterior auricular, so you incise down to the sternocleidomastoid fascia before undermining. And for treatment, you just do localized wound care and scar revision if they need it in the future. 
let's talk about lasers. And let's start with the physics of lasers. So lasers are monochromatic, coherent, in phase, and collimated. The wavelengths determine the tissue depth and medium. So higher wavelengths means deeper tissue penetration. And it also determines the chromophore or the target tissue. The pulse width or the duration determines how much energy is imparted for how long. Energy must be introduced faster than targeted tissue relaxes or it will dissipate energy into the surrounding tissues. So for example, shorter pulse width or shorter duration would be tattoos. Longer pulse width or longer durations would be something like vascular lesions. So for superficial vascular lesions, the chromophore is oxyhemoglobin. Next is cosmetic abdominoplasties. So preoperative assessment is very, very important uh, as DVT and PE are a major cause of morbidity and mortality in these patients. Patients that smoke have a higher risk of infection and a 50% complication rate. If your patient's BMI is over 30, you have a higher wound complication, seroma rate, and DVT rate. Patients taking hormone replacement therapy or having a history of lupus have an increased risk of DVT. During your pre-op assessment, you want to always ask and look for multiple spontaneous abortions or prior DVTs. Last thing to talk about is the most common nerve injury is the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, which will give you an anterior and lateral thigh numbness. The ilioinguinal, iliohypogastric nerves are also at risk. However, the genitofemoral nerve is not, as this doesn't penetrate the fascia until below the inguinal ligament. The most common complication in all cosmetic abdominoplasties is going to be seroma. Liposuction. Let's talk about the wetting solutions. Lidocaine, this is eliminated by the liver with reduced clearance by CYP3A4 inhibitors, liver disease, and reduced hepatic blood flow. The maximum dose is 3 mg per kilogram, plain, or 7 mg per kilogram with epinephrine. The tumescent dose is 35 mg per kilogram. Peak plasma levels are at 8 to 18 hours after infusion. Epinephrine, this provides hemostasis and delayed absorption via vasoconstriction. It decreases the amount of lidocaine needed and risk of toxicity. Maximum dose is 0.07 mg per kilogram, but 10 mg per kilogram has been reported safely. Bupivacaine, this is long-acting and most cardiotoxic. Toxicity is treated with 20% lipid emulsion. This is the same as lidocaine. There are slower peak plasma levels, and this is at 20 hours. Blood loss, so if you use dry technique with liposuction, there's a 25-40% to 40% blood loss of volume removed, and we no longer use this. Super wet and tumescent technique has a 1% blood loss of volume removed. Tumescent is 3-1 to 1 infiltration to aspirate. There's higher risk of fluid overload and CHF or congestive heart failure. Super wet is 1 to 1 infiltrate to aspirate, and this is the most common used. Wet is 200 to 300 cc's infiltrate per cc of aspirate. Dry is no tumescent. The volume limit for lipoaspirate is 5 liters. Let's talk about hair restoration. Hair follicles grow in clusters of 1 to 4 follicles surrounded by concentric layers of collagen fibers known as a follicular unit. Each follicular unit contains one to four terminal hairs, one vellus hair, a sweat gland, and a recti pili muscle. The follicular unit replaces older terms such as micrographs, which is one to two hairs, minigraft, which is three to eight but up to eight hairs, and a macrograft, 
Macrographs did not work well due to the large number of hairs with intervening skin. Starting off the hand and extremity portion, uh, we'll start with hand nerves. So starting with the same name game, uh, we have the radial sensory nerve compression syndrome, uh, which is Wartenberg syndrome, not to be confused with Wartenberg sign. Wartenberg's sign is the persistent abduction of the small finger when attempting to adduct all fingers. This is from an ulnar nerve injury. Now back to the radial sensory nerve compression of Wartenberg syndrome. This is a purely sensory syndrome that leads to paresthesias in the distribution of the radial sensory nerve, the dorsoradial three fingers and the hand and wrist in that area. This is reproduced by forearm pronation and ulnar wrist flexion. This usually happens where the nerve exits between brachioradialis and ECRL, approximately 9 centimeters proximal to the radial styloid. The next topic or big point is that with high or proximal motor nerve lacerations, when you're doing a repair, you should always consider a distal nerve transfer. A favorite question is about an AIN transfer to the ulnar nerve, with high ulnar nerve injuries, which are defined as anything proximal to the branches innervating the FCU and the FDPs. Last for this section, you want to make sure you go over the Sunderland, McKinnon, and Seedon classifications for nerve injuries. So with all nerve injuries, you're going to end up having Wallerian degeneration, which is distal end degenerates about 46 to 96 hours after your initial injury. You're not going to see this on EMG for about three to four weeks, though, after your injury. Now, with the classifications, you're going to start with the Sunderland-McKinnon type 1, which is also the Seden neuropraxia. This is a focal conduction block at the site of injury and recovers less than three months. Next is the Sunderland-McKinnon type 2, or axonomesis. So this is, the axon is disrupted, but you still have an intact endoneurium, perineurium, and epineurium. Type 3 Sunderland classification is the axon and the endoneurium are disrupted, but you have an intact perineurium and epineurium. This is going to end up healing slightly less than one inch per month because there's going to be scar tissue. Next is type 4 Sunderland-McKinnon classification, which has axon, endoneurium, perineurium all disrupted, but the epineurium is still intact. This is when you start to have to intervene surgically. So surgical intervention for Sunderland-McKinnon type 4 and 5 are necessary. You need to remove scar tissue and most likely reconnect the nerve segments. For type 5 Sunderland-McKinnon classification is the same as acetin neurotmesis or neurotemesis. This is a complete rupture of the nerve. And this always requires surgical intervention for any type of healing in that area. All right, let's talk about hand tendons now. And we'll start with the six extensor compartments. The first compartment contains EPB and APL. Second compartment contains ECRB and ECRL. Third compartment contains EPL. Fourth compartment contains EDC and EIP. Fifth compartment includes EDM. And sixth compartment includes ECU. EPL rupture can be seen after a distal radius fracture or if the patient has a history of rheumatoid arthritis. On exam, you would see an absence of retropulsion and not being able to lift the thumb off the table. Now let's talk about flexor injuries. And let's go over the different zones of injury. 
For zone one, that's distal to the FDS insertion on the midpoint of the middle phalanx. Zone two, also known as no man's land, that's from FDS insertion, which is the midpoint of the middle phalanx, to the level of the A1 pulley, which is the just distal to the palmar crease. Zone three spans from the proximal aspect of A1 pulley, or the distal palmar crease, to the origin of the lumbricals from the FDP tendons, or the distal edge of the transverse carpal ligament. Zone four is carpal tunnel. Zone five is the proximal aspect of the transverse carpal ligament to the musculotendinous junction. For flexor tendon repairs, sutra caliber has shown to increase the force in static testing and fatigue strength in dynamic testing. So as a result, you want to use something like a 3-0 non-absorbable versus a 4-0, and you want to place your knots dorsally as opposed to putting it ventrally. Hand fractures is a pretty large topic, so I'm just literally going to touch up on a few facts. The Salter Harris classification is easy to remember, so we're just going to think of the five types as the five letters in Salter, S-A-L-T-E-R. Type 1, the fracture is sliding through the growth plate. Type 2, the fracture is above the metaphysis. It doesn't invade the epiphysis. Type 3, the fracture is low or below the metaphysis. That involves the epiphysis. Type 4, the fracture is through the epiphysis, the growth plate, and metaphysis. In type 5, the fracture erases the space between the metaphysis and epiphysis. That's basically meaning that there's a crush or an impaction injury. For fracture dislocation, the treatment depends on the extent of the fracture. This is referred to the 30-50 rule. So remember, the PIPJ stability is dependent on the amount of intact joint surface. So for fractures involving less than 30% of the joint surface, they're almost always stable. Whereas fractures involving greater than 50% of the joint surface, they're usually unstable. Discussing the wrist topic, we'll just touch briefly on the slack wrist. So SLAC is the scapholunate advanced collapse. This is caused by a chronic SL ligament disruption. The scaphoid flexes and the lunate extends, causing changes to weight-bearing distribution in the wrist. There's a classic progression of arthritis that's detailed in the Watson classification. The first giveaway is that the radiolunate joint is usually spared throughout this. So stage one, you have radial styloid scaphoid arthritis. Next is arthritis between the scaphoid and the entire scaphoid facet on the radius. And then the third stage is arthritis between the capitate and the lunate. Like I said, the radiolunate joint is usually spared. However, there's a rare entity that people champion as a stage four of slack wrist on the Watson classification, which is pancarpal, which includes the radiolunate facet as well. Hand tumors. Most common tumor overall is ganglion. Most common solid tumor is giant cell. Most common bone tumor is enchondroma. Now let's talk about Dupuytren's. The definition of Dupuytren's disease is a progressive fibroproliferative disorder of the fascia of the palm and digits. For epidemiology, it mostly affects elderly Northern European males, a ratio of 6 to 1 males to females. Risk factors include diabetes, alcohol use, and vibration of hands. Be careful when you're doing your power-assisted lipo. The pathophysiology Myofibroblasts and increased type 3 collagen are implicated as potential causes. Presentation, patients will come in with small cords, nodules, pits, and joint contractures. The most common digits that are affected 
in descending order include the ring finger, small finger, and then middle finger. Like with most treatments, you're going to start with the least invasive. So non-operative treatments include collagenase, percutaneous needle fasciotomy. If that doesn't work, you can move on to surgical treatments like limited fasciectomy, radical fasciectomy, or placement of a full thickness skin graft. For PIP joint contracture, you're going to release the check rein ligaments and perform a capsulotomy at the collateral ligament. Rheumatoid hand. Boutonniere deformity is the most common deformity in rheumatoid arthritis, and it begins with dorsal ligament synovitis. It is characterized by PIP flexion and DIP extension. There is injury to the central tendon slip or attenuation of triangular ligament. Swan neck deformity is characterized by hyperextended PIP and flexed DIP. The lateral band subluxed dorsal to the PIP joint usually prevented by the transverse retinacular ligament. It can originate at all joints, but underlying cause is volar plate laxity. Now focusing the discussion on congenital hand. So for embryology, around week four to eight, the upper limbs develop. Remember, week five, high five, no digital separation. Week six, the digits separate. In terms of typical versus atypical cleft hand, for typical cleft hand, it's autosomal dominant with limb involvement, especially the foot deformity. They're bilateral and familial, and syndactyly is common, especially the first web space. You see a V-shaped cleft, and they're associated with cleft lip and palate. Versus, on the other hand, atypical cleft hand, it's spontaneous, usually unilateral, and there's sporadic limb involvement, but not the feet. And it's associated with Pollen syndrome. Now, remember the other few conditions. One of them is campodactyly. Remember my camp counselor? So that's a painless flexion contracture of your PIPJ, usually from the small finger, versus clinodactyly. That's a curvature of the finger in the radial or ulnar direction. And it's usually the curvature that affects the middle phalanx. For polydactyly, you can either have ulnar or radial polydactyly. Ulnar, remember, is common in African Americans, and radial is common in Caucasians. And for the radial polydactyly, we have that Wassel classification system, and remember, type 7 is associated with triphalanges. For thumb hypoplasia, there's five types based on the modified Bauth classification, and it's important to know if the patient has a stable CMC. So if you have a stable CMC, meaning that it's a type 3A deformity, then for reconstruction, you can do a tendon transfer, otherwise known as opponent's plasty. Versus if the patient doesn't have a stable CMC or a type 3B deformity, then you treat them with polycization. Acrosyndactyly is associated with amniotic band syndrome. And in this situation, the digits have proximal web space separation and the distal aspect is fused. Versus an incomplete syndactyly, which the proximal aspect is actually fused and the distal aspect is separated. There are three types of apert syndactyly. And remember those by type 1, 2, and 3. Spade hand, mitten hand, rosebud hand. What do I mean by that? In a type 1 spade hand, you have syndactyly of digits 2 to 4 with a free thumb. In type 2, you have a mitten hand, syndactyly of digits 2 to 4 with a simple syndactyly of the thumb. And in type 3, you have a rosebud hand. Now let's talk about lower extremity. Gastillo classification. Gastillo 1 is a clean wound bed with simple or minimal or non-comminuted bone fracture. Wound is less than 1 centimeter. 
Gastillo 2 is a contaminated wound, moderate comminution, a wound between 1 and 10 centimeters with no extensive soft tissue damage, flaps, or avulsions. Gastillo 3A, this wound is highly contaminated with severe comminution and wound is between 1 and 10 centimeters. There is extensive soft tissue injury, but there is adequate tissue for coverage. 3B, the wound is highly contaminated, severe comminution of the wound. There is periosteal stripping and exposure of bone and extensive soft tissue injury greater than 10 centimeters, which needs soft tissue coverage. So this is high combination of the fracture from a high-velocity trauma. And these distal third injuries will need free flap coverage as gold standard. 3C is any injury with a major vascular injury requiring repair for limb salvage. An absolute indication for amputation is a warm ischemia time of 6 hours or more. Relative indication for amputation is avulsion of the tibial nerve, massive burns with significant open wounds, and patient's inability to perform even basic principles of compliance. Now, antibiotics for these wounds. So for both Castillo 1 and 2, cefalazilin administration 24 to 72 hours with initiation ASAP after entry is indicated. So basically three days of antibiotics. Castillo 3 patients, you must add aminoglycoside to the first-generation cephalosporine for five days. Timing. It is acceptable to delay reconstruction up to 10 days post-injury. The wound must be clean and optimally there would be definitive fixation immediately prior to soft tissue coverage. Compartment syndrome. This is characterized by paresthesia, poikilothermia, pallor, paralysis, and pulselessness as the late sign. Pressure greater than 30 millimeters of mercury in the compartment is compartment syndrome by definition. Fasciotomy is the answer. Nerve repair. If the nerve defect is less than 3 centimeters, use a conduit. If longer than 3 centimeters, you must use a nerve graft. And if longer than 12 centimeters, you cannot expect to have a functional recovery. Let's talk about lymphedema. Primary lymphedema is due to an embryologic lymphatic maldevelopment. Congenital lymphedema, otherwise known as Milroy disease, happens in kids less than 10 months of age and is asymmetric and associated with VEGFR3G mutation. Lymphedema precox is bilateral, happens around adolescence, and is the most common form of primary lymphedema. MEG disease is the autosomal form and the most common hereditary form. Lymphedema tarda presents in adulthood. This is secondary to an acquired lymphatic obstruction and is most commonly secondary to lymphadenectomy in the setting of cancer treatment in the U.S. Treatment is compressive decongestive therapy. Lastly, lymphatic malformations are benign masses of abnormal lymphatic vessels, and the treatment is sclerotherapy if it is a very, very large lymphatic malformation that has recurrent infections, you can consider surgical debulking. Let's talk about microsurgery and flaps. The methods in a high classification. Type 1, there's one dominant pedicle. Examples include TFL, one head of the gastroc, rectus femoris. Type 2, there's one dominant pedicle and one minor. The minor pedicle is not able to supply the whole muscle. Example includes gracilis, soleus, and trapezius. Type 3, there are two dominant pedicles, and you may split to preserve muscle function. Example includes gluteus, rectus abdominis, and serratus. Type 4, this is segmental blood supply. 
Example includes Sartorius and Tibialis anterior. There always seems to be a question about Sartorius on the test as segmental blood supply, so make note of this. Type 5, this is one dominant pedicle at the origin and minor at insertion that is able to supply the entire muscle. Example includes latissimus and pec major. Let's talk about medications. Aspirin, or acetylsalicylic acid. It inhibits cyclooxygenase 1 and 2 and therefore blocks thromboxane A2, which is a platelet aggregator and vasoconstrictor. It also blocks prostacyclin. Herudin, this is from the leeches. It is a direct thrombin inhibitor. Remember, thrombin converts fibrinogen to fibrin, creating clot formation. Heparin, this increases antithrombin 3, so it indirectly inactivates thrombin. It also inactivates factors 9, 10, 11, and 12. Dextran, this decreases factor 8 and von Willebrand factor. It decreases platelet function, modifying fibrin structure, and a volume expander. Due to the side effects, using dextran is not recommended. Risks of dextran include anaphylaxis, acute renal failure, volume overload, pulmonary edema, ARDS, and myocardial infarction. TPA is tissue plasminogen activator. This activates plasminogen to create plasmin and cleave fibrin. It is fibrinolytic. Papaverin, this works by inhibition of the enzyme phosphodiesterase, causing an elevation of cyclic AMP levels, which vasodilates. You can use this intraoperatively for vasospasm. All right, getting close to the end, let's talk about GU recon. So for vaginal reconstruction, the acquired defect is going to tell you what type of reconstruction you're going to use. So for anterior or lateral wall recon, you're going to use a Singapore flap. For posterior wall, the most common flap of choice is going to be your VRAM. You can also use bilateral gracilis or a posterior thigh flap. With all of these, your most common complication is going to be stenosis. Remember, if you are going to choose a VRAM, you shouldn't be using it if you need a colostomy on that side. However, you can talk with your colorectal or general surgery colleagues, and you can use the contralateral side so that they can still bring the colostomy through the rectus muscle on one of the sides. When you look at comparison of techniques in total, the postoperative sexual function for these patients, the most predictive outcome is going to be what their preoperative sexual function was, not the type of reconstruction that they had. Now moving on to abdominal wall. The preferred closure of the abdominal wall is rectus muscle and fascia approximation with component separation if needed plus mesh reinforcement. If there is bowel injury or resection, use biologic or biosynthetic for the purposes of the in-service exam. Modifiable risk factors include hemoglobin A1c, obesity, nutrition, and tobacco. Anterior component separation is an external oblique eponeurotomy. This means you incise the external oblique aponeurosis about 2 cm lateral to the linea semilunaris. The key point to know is that the nerves run between the internal oblique and the transversalis muscle. The length you can obtain per side is 4 cm at the xiphoid and suprapubic area and 10 cm at the umbilicus. A tar is a transversus abdominis release, and this divides the posterior rectus sheath 0.5 cm medial to the linea semilunaris and continues laterally in the avascular plane posterior to the transversalis muscle. Moving on to the last topic, vascular malformations. So in this one, we're just going to separate infantile hemangioma from congenital hemangioma from vascular malformations. So let's discuss them each. 
infantile hemangioma, not present at birth, and by nine years of age, 90% of them completely involute. So usually observe them unless they're symptomatic or causing some kind of an obstruction. Congenital hemangioma, just like we mentioned before, anything that has the word congenital in it, the patient is born with it. So congenital hemangioma is present at birth, and it's at its maximum size at that point. The two types are rapidly involuting congenital hemangioma, or RICH, which as the name implies, by age one years old, the lesion completely disappears, versus non-involuting congenital hemangioma, or NICH, which doesn't disappear when the kid turns one year old. It just doesn't change any size. And then the third one is vascular malformations. They're not present at birth, so that's like infantile hemangioma, but unlike infantile hemangioma, they grow proportionately with the child and they never regress. So you have venous malformations. Remember, for those, you want to treat with sclerotherapy. You have lymphatic malformations. That's microcystic versus microcystic. So macrocystic, you treat with sclerotherapy as well. Microcystic, you do resections. And then the third one is your arterial venous malformations. And again, with those, you want to do IR embolization and resection. All right, that marks the end of our original Hail Mary episode. Now let's move on to more recent in-service review content. Next up is a clip from our Intro to Facial Paralysis episode with a special focus on facts to memorize on facial nerve anatomy. The facial nerve is identified in relationship to specific landmarks when you're talking about the extratemporal region. So there's two things to think about. One is it's located medial to the tympanomastoid suture running lateral to the styloid process and roughly midway between the styloid process and the posterior belly of the digastric muscle or via its relationship to the tragal pointer. It's one centimeter deep and inferior medially here. Prior to coursing anterior around the earlobe, it gives off branches to the stylohyoid posterior belly of the digastric muscle, occipitalis, and the auricular muscles. That's great. Within the face, can you tell me more about the nerve's anatomy and its functions? No. You know what? This is actually so much more fun than the brain branches. So this is about to get way better. So now let's talk about the facial nerve actually in the face, which is the part that the plastic surgeons love. So pre-auricularly, it enters the parotid gland, traveling between the deep and superficial lobes. So very important. It divides into two main branches, the temporofacial superiorly and the cervicofacial inferiorly. And then it divides into multiple branches that exit the parotid to run deep to the superficial musculoaponeurotic system or the SMAS, our favorite part of the facelift. Conceptually, this is divided into the five main divisions, the temporal, zygomatic, buccal, marginal mandibular, and cervical, as we all know from step one to Zanzibar by motor car. <laughs> All right. So then um, in actuality, so what's exiting the parotid gland is more like eight to 15 branches, which arborize, communicate, and have significant crossover between terminal branches. The consequence of this is that distal injury may not produce a significant deficit due to overlap of innervation and also permits utilization of distal branches as donors for facial reanimation. Now, moving on. The nerve travels within the parotomasseteric fascia, which is the deep fascial plane of the face, and it remains in this plane as they reach the zygomatic arch by traveling within the innominate fascia, continues with the parotomasseteric fascia. 
Now there's two to four branches that cross the arch spanning up to 50% of its length. As they cross the arch, move more superficially and course on the undersurface of the superficial temporal fascia. This is why I'm saying that it's really important for us to understand what's going on 3D rather than 2D because it doesn't matter what the branch is doing. It matters how the plane is moving from deep to superficial. So what the facial nerve does is just to reinforce that is it traveling from deep to superficial. And once you hit a few centimeters above the zygomatic arch, this facial nerve is moving more superficially towards the undersurface of this mass, which is why it becomes a danger zone once you get a couple of centimeters above that zygomatic arch because you can potentially injure that nerve because it's flying so close to this mass. Next, we have the zygomatic and the buccal division. These can be difficult to distinguish because both anatomically and function, they are often considered together as zygomatico-buccal division. They run in close approximation with each other as they exit the parotid. There are one to three zygomatic branches that exist, and in 10% of the population, the lower zygomatic branch joins the buccal branches to create the zygomatical buccal plexus. All right, so moving on to the buccal branches. So the buccal branch or branches run in close proximity to the parotid duct, most often traveling inferiorly. Moving on to the last two divisions, the marginal mandibular division and the cervical division, I think it's important to talk about both of them because their symptoms can overlap, but it's important to distinguish between the two. So the marginal mandibular division runs as two to four branches, it descends from the parotid, and it's commonly running below the body of the mandible, deep to the platysma. Branches then turn and travel superiorly, crossing the inferior border of the mandible to innervate their target musculature. And the muscles that it innervates are the depressor anguli oris, the depressor labi inferioris, and the mentalis. So the most important one about of all of these is the mentalis, because the mentalis causes lower lip aversion and for you to be able to pout and also lower lip elevation. So when you injure this nerve, you have impaired lower lip depression. If you're going to smile, you're going to have decreased dentition showing on one side, the injured side. You can also potentially have drooling, not an attractive quality. You have an inability to evert the lip. You basically have an asymmetric pout. And I keep emphasizing this because that's the one thing that separates injury to the marginal mandibular division from the cervical division. So the cervical division... Unlike the other divisions, it generally is only one branch, and it exits the parotid anterior to the angle of the mandible, and it doesn't divide until it passes inferior to the mandibular border. And it innervates the platysma from its undersurface, just like all the other muscles I mentioned. All right, moving on to rhinoplasty. Okay, now let's talk about the internal and external nasal valves. First, the internal nasal valve. So this is between the septum and the upper lateral cartilage. We talk about clinically testing using the caudal maneuver, which is pulling the skin away just lateral to the nose to see if this improves breathing. A positive caudal maneuver would mean that maybe there's collapse of the internal nasal valve. Let's move on to nasal analysis. Let's first talk about some of the ideal angles. The nasofrontal angle in males is thought to be between 120 to 130 degrees, females 115 to 125 degrees. Next, the nasolabial angle in males 90 to 95 degrees and females 100 to 105 degrees. One way to look at tip projection is it should be two-thirds the length of the nose. 
or equal to the base width. The base width should be equal to the intercanthal distance. Now rotation, this was at first a little bit hard for me to understand. So when we talk about over rotation, the tip is too high versus under rotated pointing too low. Now the base view or worm's eye view, the nose should look like an isosceles triangle and the upper third is just the tip lobule and then the lower two thirds is the columella and nair. Okay, moving on to some important things to know intraoperatively that could be tested. So when you remove part of the septum for a cartilage graft, so you have to make sure and preserve at least one centimeter of an L strut. So that's both one centimeter of caudal septum and one centimeter of dorsal septum to preserve strength. Less than one centimeter, there's risk of dorsal collapse, saddle nose deformity, Next, when you're doing a septoplasty, you need to make sure and avoid aggressive rocking or twisting forces applied to the septum posteriorly at the ethmoid plate because this could cause a traumatic injury to the cripiform plate, resulting in a CSF leak. Most commonly, you will see this on the right side, males greater than females, and it's characterized by clear discharge, taste salty, or like metal, and it's worsened by straining valsava or leaning forward. And of course, diagnosis, you need to do a beta-2 transferring test of the discharge. So think about the borders of the internal nasal valve, and those are the upper lateral cartilage superiorly, the anterior-inferior turbinate posteriorly, the caudal septum medially, the nasal floor inferiorly, and then also the piriform margin laterally. All right, let's move on to our maxillo facial episode. So the facial buttresses, these provide structural support to the facial skeleton, and stability of these buttresses is critical for maintenance of skeletal integrity for both facial width and height and balance of forces on the face. And so first, the vertical buttresses, there are four. We have the nasomaxillary, zygomaticomaxillary, and pterygomaxillary, as well as the mandibular ramus and condyle. Horizontal buttresses, again, there are four. You have first the supraorbital rim, then the infraorbital rim, or also the upper transverse maxillary. You then have the nasal floor and maxillary alveolus, and then you have the mandibular arch. Always remember the parotid duct, stents and ducts. So if your facial laceration is in the location um, of the cheek, so we should be thinking about what is the course of the parotid duct. So keep in mind, this duct is about five centimeters in length and it loosely follows a line that you draw from the lower margin of the conca to midway between the red margin of the upper lip and the ala of the nose. So where is the papilla of the duct located? So to find it, it would be found within the mucosa of the cheek at the level of the second maxillary molar. The frontal sinus has an anterior and a posterior table. Examine the nose for CSF rhinorrhea. You can do a test at the bedside, either halo sign or also called a ring test. This is when you place a drop of fluid on filter paper and the CSF fluid will diffuse faster than the blood and give the appearance of a halo around a center stain. 
You can also send the fluid for beta-2 transferrin. So this is the most reliable test to check for a CSF leak. You can also check the glucose, which will be higher in the CSF when compared to the serum glucose on your chemistry. CSF leak, you're gonna have a greater risk when there's a posterior table fracture and when it is displaced greater than one table width because there is a higher risk for associated dural tear. So let's summarize all of that really quick. So number one, cranialization criteria. So if there is a severe posterior wall fracture, if there is a CSF leak that persists greater than seven to 10 days, one to two weeks, sometime in that time period, or if a craniotomy is otherwise indicated due to head injury. So if that is the case, those patients undergo cranialization. If they do not meet cranialization criteria, who meets criteria for obliteration of the nasofrontal outflow tract? So if you suspect obstruction, if there is severe medial sinus fracture, if there is severe sinus floor fracture or severe ethmoid fracture, so basically we're getting at and there's injury to the nasofrontal duct. So if this is the case, those patients go on to obliteration of the nasofrontal duct. If they do not, so who meets reconstruction criteria? So those who have severely displaced anterior table or comminuted fractures, and for cosmetic purposes, they need to go on for reduction and fixation. All other patients can be observed. Once you cranialize, you have to obliterate that outflow tract or else bacteria can go from the nose to the brain and put you at risk for uh, encephalitis, etc. Now let's move on to orbital fracture. An absolute indication for repair is when you have a floor defect greater than 50%, entrapment of the inferior rectus muscle, or an ophthalmos of greater than 2 millimeters. Of course, we're going to be getting an ophthalmology consult anyways, but we need an emergent <laughs> consult with their evaluation if the patient presents with any of the following, which include blindness, hyphema, which is the presence of blood in the anterior chamber of the eye, blurred vision, eye pain, globe rupture, or retrobarbital hematoma. What are postoperative complications? So again, retrobarbital hematoma, signs are severe eye pain, proptosis, afferent pupillary defect, change in visual acuity, and ultimately blindness. Don't let it come to this. This is a surgical emergency canthalysis, canthotomy at the bedside, and then back to the OR. Now let's move on to NOE fractures or nasoorbitoethmoid fractures. I will just call it NOE from here on out. These fractures are classified based on the Markowitz classification, type 1, 2, and 3. Type 1 is a large central fragment. Type 2 is more comminuted, but the medial canthal tendon insertion is still intact. Okay, so it's still on a piece of bone. And then type 3 is extensive comminution and the medial canthal tendon is disrupted, so it's not even attached to bone anymore. You may need to perform transnasal wiring in order to place the medial canthal tendon where it needs to be. So it should be positioned posterior and superior to the lacrimal fossa or anterior lacrimal crest with slight overcorrection. So just definition, Lafort 1 is a transverse fracture through the zygomaticomaxillary and the nasomaxillary buttress, and by definition, through the pterygoid plate. Lafort 2 is pyramidal fracture through the ZM buttress, so zygomaticomaxillary, 
infraorbital rims, medial orbit and nasofrontal junction, again, plus pterygoid. Before three is complete craniofacial disjunction with separation of the cranium from the face at the zygomaticofrontal suture and the orbital and nasofrontal junction. So the next question goes over basically occlusion and asking about the angle classification system. And you need to know that. I didn't really talk about that. However, it's pretty simple. The specific definition would be class one is the mesiobuccal cusp is in line with the buccal groove. Class two is the maxillary mesiobuccal cusp is anterior to the mandibular buccal groove. And then class three is when the maxillary mesiobuccal cusp lies posterior to the mandibular buccal groove. Next, we have some quick memorization facts on Botox and filler from our injectables episode. So botulinum toxin is derived from the bacteria Clostridium botulinum. It works by cleaving the snare protein and inhibiting presynaptic acetylcholine release at the neuromuscular junction. It's injected intramuscularly in humans uh, for chemodenervation resulting in paralysis of the muscle. The most commonly used formulation is onabotulinum toxin type A, brand name Botox or Botox Cosmetic. They're actually the same thing, just marketed differently. There is also a abobotulinum toxin A called Dysport, and it's important to remember that Dysport has lactose as a component when it's reconstituted. So it's contraindicated in patients with milk allergy. So what about upper eyelid ptosis? How do you get that? So upper eyelid ptosis can occur through two different mechanisms. The most common is when you treat the glabellar region, and then the Botox diffuses through the orbital septum to affect the nearby levator palprivae superioris muscle, and that causes the eyelid to droop. This can occur up to two weeks after injection. The other less common mechanism is that sometimes a patient can have an overactive frontalis muscle that hides eyelid ptosis that they already have. So then when you treat the frontalis with Botox, the eyelid ptosis becomes visible. So you want to inject at least one centimeter above the brow to avoid eyelid ptosis in either situation. So if you get eyelid ptosis, um, how can you treat it? So you can treat it with eye drops that contain an alpha-2 adrenergic agonist. Um, and the example most commonly used is apoclonidine. These cause the Mueller's muscle, also known as the superior tarsal muscle, to contract since it's innervated by sympathetic fibers. And then that causes the eyelid to elevate one to three millimeters. Yeah. Important to know for exam, they love uh, to confuse you and call Mueller's muscle the superior tarsal muscle. So um, I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, so you've heard it now. Do not get confused. <laughs> You'll be thinking Mueller's muscle is the answer and they'll try to confuse you. So it's also superior tarsal. Hyaluronic acid is definitely the most commonly used um, and tested from what I was reading. What anatomic plane do you inject hyaluronic acid filler into? Well, it actually depends on where you're putting the filler. Um, so if you're doing tear trough or cheek augmentation, you want to go all the way down to the subperiosteal plane. So the tip of the needle actually hits bone when you first put it in. So for filling deep ritids, such as nasolabial and perioral folds, you inject into the subdermal space. Um, and this last fact has been tested recently. What if you inject hyaluronic acid filler and the patient then has evidence of an arterial injection, such as painless blanching or decreased sensation? 
So again, hyaluronidase. So um, the initial dose, this is really important because this has been asked, um, 150 to 300 units. That's the initial dose. Um, the arterial compromise can occur either because the hyaluronic acid was injected into the artery or the blood supply was otherwise injured by nearby injection. Also, central retinal artery occlusion is extremely rare, but can happen when injecting on the nasal dorsum, since the nasal dorsal artery is a distal continuation of the ophthalmic artery. So the treatment for that would be retrobulbar injection of hyaluronidase. And now the last in-service review episode of 2022, head and neck cancer. First, over 95% of upper aerodigestive tract tumors are from squamous cell carcinoma. And the overall five-year survival is variable, but it's about 65%. It's based on the stage, the site, and histologic findings. There is a relative risk of about 3.4 for oral cavity and 6.8 for oral pharynx squamous cell carcinoma in current tobacco smokers compared with non-smokers. Also, tobacco with concomitant alcohol consumption synergistically increases the risk 10 to 15-fold. So now let's go on to talk about treatment in more of a generic capacity for all head and neck tumors. So in general, early stage tumors are treated with single modality therapy and late stage tumors are treated with multi-modality therapy, usually surgery, followed by adjuvant radiation with or without chemotherapy. Surgery is the mainstay of treatment for oral cavity cancer. For most sites, adequate surgical margins are defined by the NCCN guidelines as greater than 5 millimeters or more on final pathology. And then a close margin would be defined as anything less than 5 millimeters. Most of the time, you can rely on frozen section examination to make sure you have clear surgical margins if you're going to, for example, follow with immediate flap reconstruction. So let me try to summarize that treatment for you. Stage 1 or 2 disease, for example, no nodal metastases. These patients usually receive complete surgical resection with or without neck dissection versus radiation therapy to the primary site. And remember, like I said, radiation therapy sometimes is used primarily for the lesions of larynx, hypopharynx, and nasopharynx. And then surgery is frequently recommended for oropharynx, oral cavity, and paranasal sinuses. Then for stage 3 or 4 disease, complete surgical resection, neck dissection, and adjuvant radiation therapy is recommended. Now, who gets a neck dissection if you have an early stage cancer? So there is evidence that there is an increased overall survival in early stage oral cancers those who receive an elective neck dissection, and also decreased nodal recurrence, and this is despite an increased risk of postoperative complications. Now let me describe for you the levels of the neck for the neck dissection because we frequently do get tested on this. Level 1 is the submental and submandibular triangles. 1A is submental, 1B is submandibular. Level 2 is the upper jugular group. It extends from the skull base to the carotid bifurcation or hyoid bone. Level 3, the middle jugular group extends from the carotid bifurcation hyoid bone to the omohyoid muscle or cracothyroid notch. Level 4, the lower jugular group extends from the omohyoid muscle to the clavicle. 
And level five is the posterior triangle bounded by the posterior border of the sternocleidomastoid muscle, the anterior border of the trapezius and the clavicle. Level six is the anterior central compartment. So most important probably to know is six is central compartment, 1A, 1B, submental, submandibular, five is posterior, and then two, three, and four divide up that lateral portion of the neck. The next question asks about a malignant or a pharyngeal tumor and how it is staged. So very important, you must know about the HPV status. So P16 via immunohistochemistry. So that's really important. The most recent NCCN staging guidelines require the HPV status to determine staging. A very similar question, or a pharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma associated with tobacco and alcohol. How is that compared to oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma associated with HPV? And so the squamous cell carcinomas associated with HPV have a better prognosis stage for stage. Okay, time to move on to 2023 content. The next topic is tissue expansion. What properties of the skin make tissue expansion possible? So tissue expansion is possible due to the viscoelastic properties of the skin. Stretching of the skin promotes cell division, increased angiogenesis, and activation of various cascades that promote the production of growth factors, as well as cytoskeletal structure synthesis and protein kinase activation. So what is a creep phenomena and how does it play into effect in tissue expansion? Creep is defined as stretching of a material under a constant load over time. There are two components of the creep phenomenon that occur during tissue expansion. First, when a mechanical stress is induced on a tissue, the tissue undergoes mechanical creep. This is the skin's inherent ability to stretch. There is a displacement of fluid out of the collagen networks. Then the collagen and elastic fibers undergo microfragmentation. The fibers then realign into the expanded field of adjacent tissue. This usually occurs with acute stretching of the skin. Then you have biological creep, which is a result of mechanical stress over time after chronic stretching. During this time, you'll see increased fibroblast, collagen, and myofilament synthesis in the stretched tissue, increased mitotic activity, and neovascularization. So there's actual cellular growth and tissue regeneration in this type of creep. Over time, the tissue then experiences stress relaxation. So the longer the tissue is expanded, the less force is needed to maintain that tissue stretch due to new tissue formation. That makes sense. So during expansion, the different layers of the skin undergo specific changes. Just to recap quickly, the most important points, I think, are thicker epidermis, 50% thinner dermis, temporarily at least, less adipose, and if muscle is included, it gets thinner, but there's no functional deficit. How do you know how big the expanded tissue should be to cover the defect? So tissue available for the reconstruction can be approximately calculated as the circumference of the expanded tissue minus the base diameter of the expander. As a result, the choice of expander is an important initial step for decision-making and tissue expansion. What is the rule of thumb for how big you want the expander to be? You usually want the base diameter to be 2 to 2.5 times the diameter of the defect that you want to close. The scalp is one of the few regions of the body with specific hair-bearing qualities. So tissue expansion on the scalp is an ideal option for defect coverage. Using the nearby tissue means that you can cover the defect with hair-bearing skin instead of having a hairless spot in the area of the reconstruction. And up to 50% of the scalp can undergo tissue expansion without any noticeable thinning of hair. What are some of the risk factors that can increase complication rates? Well, we've already mentioned a few of the risk factors already. So the main risk factors for complications include tissue expander location in the extremities. 
especially below the knees, burn reconstruction, children below the age of seven, irradiated tissue like we talked about, and infection. Now onto my personal favorite, gender-affirming surgery. Let's talk about standards of care for gender-affirming surgery. Could you describe what resources a surgeon has for guidance regarding transgender health and how to determine when surgery is indicated? The World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH, is an international professional association with guidelines for gender-expansive patients. WPATH defines evidence-based standard of care recommendations to provide clinical guidance for health professionals. Got it. And now I would like to move on to discussing breast surgery for transfeminine patients. What are some of the pre-op considerations prior to the procedure? So preoperatively, patients over 40 years of age on feminizing hormone therapy should have a screening mammogram and be assessed for breast cancer risk. Um, Location of the nipples on the chest wall should also be noted during a preoperative physical as implants are placed uh, with the nipple centered. I see. And what are the different options for breast surgery? So for transfeminine breast augmentation, fat grafting is an option for those wanting a modest augmentation. However, most patients opt for an alloplastic device like silicone or saline. For these implants, they can be placed subpectorally or subplantrally. Choice between the two depends on what the patient wants because both have their pros and cons. Got it. And now I'd like to discuss transfeminine bottom surgery. What are some of the important preoperative considerations prior to the surgery? Absolutely. So preoperative requirements for transfeminine genital surgery, uh, they're outlined in the World Professional Association guidelines and include two letters of readiness from independent mental health professionals that the patient has been on estrogen therapy and has been living in their congruent female gender role for at least one year prior to surgery. Those are the two main things that patients need prior to transfeminine genital surgery. And these types of surgeries are sterilizing, so it's important to discuss the option of sperm banking for those who want to preserve their fertility. And let's say a 16-year-old birth-assigned male wishes to undergo this genital surgery. The patient has two letters of referrals, 12 months of hormone therapy, and has been living fully in the role of their desired gender for at least one year, as you said. Are there additional requirements specific for these minor patients? Absolutely. So um, the question Sam says is a 16-year-old patient. So based on WPATH guidelines, because the patient is under the age of 18, guardian consent is required along with the patient assent as long as the patient has the capacity to make a fully informed decision and provide the consent. There are two main techniques to create a neovagina with a canal, and they are based on what material is used to reconstruct the canal. The most commonly practiced is called penile inversion vaginoplasty, which typically uses penoscrotal flaps to line the neovagina. There's also intestinal vaginoplasty, which uses a segment of the sigmoid colon instead, um, but this type of procedure is typically reserved for cases in which uh, primary penile inversion with penoscrotal flaps uh, has failed. One of the most important aspects of post-op care in transfeminine general surgery is dilating the neovagina for a very long time, usually for life. Kind of foregoing dilation will eventually lead to contraction and patients will lose their depth. I'd like to begin the transmasculine surgery segment of the episode. A thorough past medical and family history are crucial to determine the patient's risk of breast cancer. This information impacts surgical planning because top surgery essentially leaves some breast tissue behind, while risk-reducing mastectomies involve a different surgical procedure, which removes all of the breast tissue. Additionally, according to the WPATH guidelines for chest surgery uh, in transmasculine adults, one letter of readiness is recommended, but no duration of testosterone therapy is required. 
That being said, if a patient is taking testosterone therapy, there's no need to discontinue the hormone therapy prior to surgery because evidence, recent evidence, suggests that it is not related to wound healing, bleeding, or DVT um, in cisgender men. Overarching theme in this is essentially the, the, the chest size with which patients present with. There are a few variables to think about, including the degree of breast tissue, the volume of parenchyma resected, the amount of skin redundancy, and the grade of ptosis. For instance, periareolar breast reduction demonstrates excellent results when limited to patients with smaller breasts, minimal ptosis, and a smaller skin envelope. Whereas wise pattern and circumareolar reduction mammoplasties can be used in patients with modest skin excess and allowing for resizing of the nipple areolar complex. Um, most commonly, subcutaneous mastectomy with free nipple grafts is the most appropriate procedure for patients with high-grade ptosis, significant breast volume, and those with long-term use of a binder. What are the WPATH guidelines for genital transmasculine procedures? So interestingly, um, with the recent changes in WPATH, the guidelines have recently changed. So previously, two formal referral letters from qualified healthcare professionals were required prior to genital surgical treatment or evaluation. However, the latest version of WPATH states that trans and gender diverse patients seeking uh, treatments, including hormones, genital, chest, facial, and other gender affirming surgeries require only a single written opinion from a healthcare professional. Um, those are the new guidelines, but just keep in mind that um, insurance companies have not really been up to date with the changes in WPATH. So some insurances may require more letters or a more stringent process. Are there certain approaches for performing a phalloplasty and urethral reconstruction that are used most commonly? Absolutely. So there's a lot of research going into, you know, what type of flap is best for this type of reconstruction. In today's day and age, formal phalloplasty is most commonly performed with a radial forearm free flap utilizing a tube within a tube design for reconstruction of the penile urethra. And what is the most common complication to watch out for after a phalloplasty surgery? So the most common complications after phalloplasty are unfortunately urologic with an incidence of approximately 40%. This typically involves the formation of urethral fistulas and strictures. The most common locations for fistulas and strictures to develop is at the anastomosis of the fixed urethra and the phallic urethra. Up next, pressure sores. So pressure injury occurs when the perfusion is impaired to this tissue and that is when external pressure exceeds the capillary bed pressure, which is 32 millimeters of mercury. Usually this can be avoided if you relieve pressure over bony prominence for only five minutes every two hours, and this allows for adequate perfusion to uh, prevent soft tissue breakdown. Other extrinsic factors are pressure relief. So, you know, we're always taught elevate the head of the bed, but specifically for pressure ulcers is actually the opposite. So you want to minimize head of bed elevation to reduce that sacral shear force. So it needs to be less than 45 degrees. Next, so reposition every two hours and, and encourage mobility. Make sure there's optimal blood glucose control with an A1C of less than 6%. So that's a very specific number that you'll see on the exam. Also correcting anemia. Nutrition, definitely con consult a nutritionist for assessment and dietary modifications for caloric goals specific for wound healing. You want to check albumin and prealbumin. The ideal goal for albumin is greater than 3.0 before operating. So this next portion is very important because there's always a question on this. Management of pressure injury based on the location. So first, the ischium. 
So this is common in patients that are seated for prolonged periods, such as wheelchair-bound patients, and there's a high recurrence rate due to the pressure and tension across the joint while sitting. When you reconstruct the ischium, you want to make sure and consider a flap that can be readvanced subsequently when it breaks down in the future. Options for reconstruction really are local advancement of a fascia cutaneous flap, a V to Y advancement of hamstring flap, or a tensor fasciolata flap. The local advancement of fascia cutaneous flap, that is basically like a posterior thigh flap. Now the sacrum, these defects are common in supine or bedridden patients. One thing to consider when reconstructing these is the depth of the womb because you may need to fill some dead space. The most common musculocutaneous flap is based on the gluteus maximus muscle. This can be superior or inferiorly based and the ability to rotate, advance, or turn over. You can also use a fasciocutaneous flap or partial gluteus muscle if the patient is ambulatory and maybe the gluteus maximus muscle is not expendable. Next, trochanter. These are common in patients positioned laterally for prolonged periods of time. And commonly, this is reconstructed using TFL flap, tensor fasciolata, but you can also do a pedicled ALT flap. And that was actually a question, I believe, last year was how to reconstruct trochanteric defect, and that was the TFL flap. Next, very important, let's talk about risk factors for development, which we've touched on already, but specifically advanced age, Male sex, that's been a question, altered sensorium, moisture, immobility, malnutrition, and friction shear injury. Now, a little bit different risk factors for postoperative complications and recurrence. Young age, less than 45 years. So this is different than the risk factors for development. Low albumin, less than 3.5 grams per deciliter. African-American Ischial location, flap choice, V to Y thigh flap has a higher risk. Smoking, premature sitting postoperatively, and anemia requiring perioperative blood transfusion. Our next clip is from the anesthesia episode featuring malignant hyperthermia, maximum doses of local anesthetics, and a couple of high yield regional blocks. Volatile gas anesthetics with the suffix ane or ane. And these agents and succinylcholine are known to cause malignant, malignant hyperthermia. So, Yasmin, can you tell us more about malignant hyperthermia? Yeah, definitely. This is really important. So, malignant hyperthermia is a life-threatening hypermetabolic event that occurs after exposure to some inhaled anesthetics and depolarizing agents. Patients usually have a genetic susceptibility, which is autosomal dominant with variable penetrance. Clinical manifestations may include the following, increased end-tidal CO2, fever, tachycardia, arrhythmia, acidosis, muscle rigidity, tachypnea, skin flushing, and hypotension. Treatment includes, first and foremost, stopping the offending agent, but then also hyperventilation with 100% oxygen, dantrolene, and supportive care, including cooling blankets. And surgery must also be stopped. So speaking of maximum doses, isn't that a really common in-service question for local anesthetics? Yes, it is. 
So let's take a moment to go through it really slowly with an example, because there is almost always a question on the exam that will ask you to do some variation of this calculation. This took a little while to make sense to me when I was first learning it. So you have to start with knowing the maximum concentrations of the most commonly used local anesthetics. I actually used Iowa Head and Neck Protocol to find this information because it was shockingly difficult to find in our classic textbooks that we use, but it's definitely still tested. So these numbers can vary slightly depending on the source, but in general, you have plain lidocaine maximum dose is 4.5 milligrams per kilogram with an absolute maximum of 300 milligrams per dose. Lidocaine with epinephrine maximum dose is 7 milligrams per kilogram with an absolute maximum of 500 milligrams per dose. Plain bupivacaine, which has the brand name Marcaine, maximum dose is 2.5 milligrams per kilogram. Some sources say 2 to 2.5, with an absolute maximum of 175 milligrams per dose. Bupivacaine with epinephrine, maximum dose is 3 milligrams per kilogram, with an absolute maximum of 225 milligrams per dose. So those are the most commonly used local anesthetics in the clinical setting. There are a couple others as well, but those are definitely the four highest yield ones. So you also have, then you have the concentration of the local anesthetic, which comes in a percent. So usually that is quarter percent, half percent, one percent, or two percent. Those are the most common. The easiest way that I've found to think about the, the concentration is that you take the percent and you move the decimal to the right, one space, and then you get the number of milligrams per ml. So for 1% lidocaine, that means you have 10 milligrams per ml. And then once you have all of that information, then you do a calculation. Okay. So then can you give us an example of the calculation? So what if you have, let's say, a 46 kilogram patient and you want to figure out what is the maximum mLs of 0.5% lidocaine with epinephrine you can give them? So do these steps in whatever order works for you. But for me, I start with the patient's weight, which is 46 kilograms. So since it's lidocaine with epinephrine, our maximum dose is seven milligrams per kilogram, which means that you can give this patient a maximum of 46 times seven, which is 322 milligrams. And remember, the absolute maximum dose is 500 milligrams per dose. So we are still underneath that. So we're good. I'm just envisioning a potential trick question with a super heavy patient where the weight-based calculation actually takes you over the absolute max and they try to trick you with that. So you have to remember those numbers too. Then you have 0.5% as the concentration. You move the decimal point to the right one space. That means there are five milligrams of lidocaine in every ml. So you take 322 milligrams, which was the maximum milligram dose you could give your patient, and you divide it by five milligrams per ml, and the milligrams cancel out, and you're left with 64.4 mLs. That is the maximum amount of 0.5% lidocaine with epinephrine that you can give this patient that weighs 46 kilograms. So if you inject lidocaine first, you're supposed to wait at least 20 minutes prior to then injecting liposomal bupivacaine. If you don't, the lidocaine can have the effect of releasing the bupivacaine from the liposomes prematurely, which results in an extra high dose. And this was a question on last year's in-service exam. Also, it's generally not recommended to give any other local anesthetic for 96 hours after liposomal bupivacaine is given. 
Another interesting fact about liposomal bupivacaine is that it does not have a weight-based dosing, unlike the other local anesthetics that we were talking about. The maximum dose is either 20 ml or 266 milligrams, which seems like a super random number, but that was also tested last year. (laughs) So we've talked a lot about these maximum doses and how not to exceed them. But what exactly happens when we go above the maximum dose of lidocaine, like for example? So for lidocaine, you can get lidocaine toxicity. This is what would occur if the maximum dose of a local anesthetic was absorbed systemically, and it can happen either immediately after injection or more slowly over hours. Signs and symptoms of that include slurred speech, restlessness, tinnitus, metallic taste, perioral numbness, and bradycardia. Treatment with an IV bolus of 20% lipid emulsion at a starting dose of 1.5 mLs per kilogram. Many examples of regional anesthesia that we use in everyday practice as well. Some high-yield examples include the transversus abdominis plane or TAP block for the abdominal wall, which targets intercostal nerves. Different sources cite different levels that are covered, so there's no one right answer. Several go-to anesthesiology sources state that it's T6 through T12, whereas the 2021 in-service exam answer key cited it as T7 to L1. So I don't know. I mean, those are only different by one level. As long as you know the general range, plus or minus one, you should be able to get most of those questions right. There's also the pectoralis block, which targets medial and lateral pectoral nerves with a PEC1 block. And then if you do the PEC2 block, you do those Plus, you also add a second injection between pec minor and serratus anterior to target the intercostal and intercostobrachial nerves. Next, let's take a listen to some more high-yield clips from the facelift episode. So the in-service exam questions really focus on the following. So they always, every year, ask about the great auricular nerve anatomy. So you need to know the exact location and what does it innervate. So innervation is really um, the ear lobule and then the skin in front and back of the ear. It emerges from posterior border of the SCM, sternocleidomastoid. Um, It lies parallel and posterior to the external jugular vein. And where does it emerge? So this is uh, very specific. So it is most superficial, one third of the distance from that external auditory canal and the clavicular origin of the SCM. So that is commonly known as herbs point or punctum nervosum. The next thing is for facelift, the risk of hematoma is very specific that it's higher in men and above a systolic blood pressure of 140. Prevention, you can use clonidine. Next, they ask about aging skin. So some very specific things. You'll see thinning of the epidermis and dermis. The dermal epidermal junctions flatten. And don't worry, we'll hear a little bit more about this shortly. Um, Other things, they will ask about the facial nerve anatomy and specifically where it can be injured. So make sure and review that. They'll ask about uh, utility of fat grafting. So one question recently showed a very thin face on a patient and they asked, what is the most important thing for this patient? And you just have to know the, the new concepts of fat grafting and how useful that can be. And then lastly, management of salivary leak due to, to parotid gland injury, which the answer to that is use a bland diet, scopolamine patch, and you could also do Botox injections straight into the gland. So the SMAS is a fibromuscular layer investing the mimetic muscles. It's continuous with the galea aponeurotica, the temporoparietal fascia, and the superficial cervical fascia, as well as the platysma. 
This mass can be divided into the fixed and the mobile parts. The fixed mass lies over the parotid and is thicker to protect the facial nerve. The mobile SMAS is relatively thin and its mobilization allows for the mid-phase and lower-phase movement during facelifts. What do we need to be careful for if we violate the deep fascia below the SMAS? Underneath the deep fascia are the facial nerve branches, and violation of this plane can result in nerve damage. So the temporal branch travels close to Patange's line. This is a line from the tragus to 1.5 centimeters above the lateral eyebrow. It is protected by both the SMAS and the underlying parotidotemporal fascia. Now, what about the buccal and zygomatic branches? Uh, so they exit out from the anterior parotid and are protected by the SMAS and the parotidomasteric fascia. So the great auricular nerve, remember, this is the one that is always on the exam. So there's always at least one question on the in-service. Um, and it's usually asking about either innervation or anatomy of the great auricular nerve. Awesome. Uh, this nerve provides sensation to the ear, as we talked about earlier, specifically the external ear, um, many times has been stated on the, uh, as the ear lobule, also the skin in the post-auricular region and overlying the angle of the mandible. It is most commonly injured nerve during a facelift, and up to 7% of patients have damage to the great auricular nerve. Um, is there another nerve that we need to be aware of? Yes, also the auricular temporal nerve. Yes. So if we divide this nerve during a facelift, the reinnervation can cause Fry's syndrome or gustatory sweating. So skin only or subcutaneous facelifts are done by undermining in the subcutaneous plane. So think about if you just remove and tighten the skin, the result is not going to be as good or as drastic, and there will be much quicker recurrence of aged appearance with descent of the tissue. It is usually performed in conjunction with some sort of SMAS placation or implication that tightens the SMAS without undermining. Another option is the lateral SMASectomy, which is done by resecting a strip of SMAS from the malar eminence to the angle of the mandible in a line parallel to the nasolabial fold. The fixed and mobile SMAS are sutured together, and the SMAS is placated posteriorly to elevate the cheeks and jowls. Now, a little bit different. So at a deep plane facelift, again, this is generalized because there are many variations of this. You create a single flap of skin and SMAS. The incision is made skin only in front of the ear, then deepened to include the SMAS over the deep parotid fascia. So you have limited skin undermining, which can be beneficial. The flap is then mo mobilized to appear laterally. And so who do you think would benefit from this type of flap? Um, I think it would be patients who have more difficulty with wound healing, like smokers, that would be the best candidates for this flap because of its robust vascularity. Right. Although we will not actually be doing a facelift on an active smoker due to the risk, at least in my practice. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> um, so this flap has its drawbacks too. Uh, for one, the skin can't be mobilized in a different vector from the SMAS without some contour irregularities. Also, the neck skin may move upwards onto the face. The deeper layer of dissection is also associated with increased risk for facial nerve damage. Yes. So in the deep plane, you divide the zygomatic and masseteric ligaments, which are right at the level where the zygomatic and buccal branches start to become superficial. And you can see them innervating the underside of the muscles in the SMAS. So therefore, it inherently has a higher risk of injury to these versus if you did not undermine the SMAS in this region at all. Awesome. Um, so next, can you tell us a little bit about the subperiosteal facelift? 
Sure. Now, this, I would say most surgeons do not perform this, but just so we know what it is, the subperiosteal facelift elevates the whole mid-face periosteum as one layer. Little combine this with a temporal and perioral subperiosteal mid-face release with stacking of soft tissue to emphasize the malar eminence. Though this procedure works well to redrape the forehead and mid-face, it does not address the neck or perioral region. Therefore, patients with lower face skin redundancy are not good candidates. And let's face it, this is basically everyone. <laughs> to wrap up this discussion, can we go over some key takeaways to remember? So first, with aging, we get changes in volume to soft tissues and overall movement downward. You can address decreases in volume with fat grafting into fat compartments. Skin changes are also common and can be addressed with resurfacing techniques. Facial nerve injury can be prevented by being mindful of the danger zones and depth of dissection. The temporal branch follows Patangi's line. Injury to the marginal mandibular branch can be differentiated from the cervical branch by asking patients to evert their lower lip. The cervical branch innervates the platysma, which is what innervates the lower lip during full denture smiles. To prevent hematoma, it's important to maintain good control of the systolic blood pressure in the perioperative period, maximum of 140. The upper part of the nasolabial fold is very hard to create and destroy, and on average, secondary facelifts are done about nine years after the primary facelift. Now that we've reviewed facelift, it's time for neck lift. So there are three classic platysma decusation and interdigitation patterns that contribute to the submental neck contour. So type one is seen 75% of the time with a partial decusation in the midline, about one to two centimeters below the mandibular symphysis. Type two is seen 15% of the time with a total decusation from the mandible to the hyoid bone. Type three is seen 10% of the time with no interdigitation. These midline decusations can create a supportive sling, but when the decusation is absent, the free medial muscle edges fall away and create vertical bands, which everybody hates. <laughs> the marginal mandibular nerve is located at the tail of the parotid glands in a subplatysmal plane. When posterior to the facial artery, the marginal mandibular nerve runs above the inferior border of the mandible 81% of the time, or up to one centimeter below the mandible, the other 19% of the time. The danger zone with this nerve is usually a two centimeter radius circle located two centimeters posterior to the oral commissure. What about other areas for pre-op evaluation? So we also want to evaluate for subcutaneous and preplatismal fat. These can be differentiated from excess subplatismal fat by pinching the submental area at rest and after contraction of the platysma muscles. Any displaced fat can contribute to totic jowls, and a loss of definition in the inferior mandibular border from platysmal laxity and mandibular ligament attenuation. Let's summarize the main points. When evaluating a neck for cervicoplasty, evaluate the mid-phase for an ideal combined result. So patients rarely need cervicoplasty only. Diligently examine facial proportions, including chin projection. If the skin is sun damaged and inelastic, a full periauricular incision is required. Submental approach to neck lift will improve a patient's profile, cervical mental angle, and jawline, but does not address the neck face aging above mandibular border or angle. Do not over-resect fat. Leave three to five millimeters of subcutaneous cushion on the flap. Look and gently pinch the neck to consider the need for fat removal. Evaluate muscles and banding. 
with an anterior platysmoplasty, the neck is better consolidated, but this does not suffice to treat banding. A division of the platysma must be performed to solve the problem. The height of the myotomy is usually at the level of the cricoid cartilage. The best results provide harmony of all facial proportions. Finally, discuss the risk of procedures thoroughly with patients and set realistic goals and expectations. All right, last but not least, here's a quick review of the most important facts for lasers and chemical peels. So the chromophore targeted in treating vascular lesions is oxyhemoglobin. The endpoint of treatment is vascular clearance or purpura. We select lasers according to the nature of the lesion treated. So for example, starting with hemangiomas and lymphatic malformations, we use the ND-YAG 1064 nanometer laser. However, we want to remember that we focus treatment of hemangiomas on those that cause functional impairment, and that we provide this treatment during an early stage when growth of the lesion can be halted. Laser treatment of hemangiomas is contraindicated in their proliferative phase because this can result in ulceration and necrosis. Moving on, we use a pulse dye laser to treat port wine stains and telangiectasias, which may remain after the involution of a hemangioma. As for rosacea and associated rhinophyma, we can use a KTP 532 nanometer laser for rosacea, pulsed yellow dye laser for telangiectasias, and for advanced stage rhinophyma, CO2 laser excision. The best laser to target dark pigments like black and blue is the Q-switch in the Act in 64 nanometer laser as it has the deepest tissue penetration and the least risk of hypopigmentation. We can also use the Q-Switch Ruby 694 nanometer laser, which is absorbed by melanin and carbon to target dark pigments including purple and green. A side effect is transient hypopigmentation. That said, the best laser to target green pigments is the Q-Switch Alexandrii 755 nanometer laser. For red, yellow, orange, and brown color pigments, we can use the Q-Switch NDAG 532 nm laser, which targets hemoglobin as its chromophore. Bear in mind that yellow and orange pigments are highly resistant to removal. The laser hair removal commonly uses the diode 800 nm and the NDAG 1064 nm lasers with melanin as the targeted chromophore. Both of these lasers are safe for treating light and darker skin types, ranging from Fitzpatrick 1 to 6. However, they are not particularly useful in very fair-haired patients who have low levels of melanin in their hair follicles. We generally prefer long-pulsed lasers for these patients as they are better for hair removal. Pulse dye and CO2 lasers have been successfully used to ablate warts, but can be painful, expensive, and cost-scoring. Laser skin resurfacing focuses on water as the target chromophore. Lasers are classified according to their mechanism of action, so whether they are ablative or non-ablative. Ablative lasers include the Erbium YAG 2940 nanometer laser, which can be used to treat moderate to heavy rhytids, and the carbon dioxide 10,600 nanometer laser, which is frequently popularized in public perception of resurfacing techniques. Non-ablative lasers include the Erbium doped fiber 1550 nanometer laser, as well as fractional lasers used for acne scar resurfacing in patients with darker skin types ranging from Fitzpatrick 4 to 6. These fractional lasers work by denaturing dermal collagen and causing subsequent remodeling. Their advantage is that they do not cause vaporization or damage to the epidermal layer. Beyond resurfacing, ablative and non-ablative lasers can be used to treat hypertrophic scars, 
freckles, skin texture abnormalities, and dyschromia. Before I go more into ablative lasers and their complications, Hassem, can you tell us about patient pre-treatment before undergoing laser skin resurfacing? Yes, in order to promote faster healing and prevent post-treatment hyperpigmentation, we start the patient on hydroquinone 4% and tretinoin 0.05% about 4-6 to six weeks before the procedure. We should also instruct the patient to discontinue any oral products containing isotretinoin or Accutane about 6 months to 1 year before the procedure. An important complication that we've touched on previously is reactivation of HSV, which will typically present during the first week post-op. This is why we give antiviral prophylaxis with Valtrex or Valcyclovir before treatment and for 10 to 14 days post-treatment. Hypopigmentation remains the most common long-term complication of laser treatments, particularly after CO2 lasers, and occurs within one to two years following laser treatment. With chemical peels, we are applying a chemical exfoliant to the skin, and this chemical creates a controlled wound of the epidermis and or dermis. We can discuss some common types. We have our superficial peeling agents, which include the alpha-hydroxyacyl peels, Jessner's solution, and salicylic acid. The classic medium-depth peel is the trichloroacetic acid peel. And last but not least, we have our deep peels, which include the Baker-Gordon formula and Heter's formula. Well said, Azam. Just as an FYI for our listeners, a very classic and high-yield complication of deep chemical peels containing phenol, such as the Baker-Gordon formula, is cardiac arrhythmias. Phenol can cause EKG changes, so cardiac monitoring is necessary when these peels are administered. If a patient develops arrhythmias, treatment would be initiated with IV lidocaine at one make per keg. Thank you for listening to this year's Hail Mary episode, a relatively quick review of high-yield facts from all of our in-service review content released thus far. Hope this helped with your last-minute cramming, and good luck on the exam, everyone. If you enjoyed our content, please be sure to subscribe to The Loop Podcast on your favorite podcast app, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Loop Podcast to get in the loop.